Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we're reminded that being a true child of God is about being right with God inwardly. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Father Abraham Had Many Sons. Chapter 2, we are studying verses 17 through 29. This is our, our last Sunday, Lord willing, so long as we make it through this passage. Last Sunday of studying this section together before we move into then chapter 3. So Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read starting in verse 17. The section we're primarily studying will come in verses 25 to 29. So we'll kind of show the flow of the argument starting in verse 17. And then I need to pray and ask for God's help. Verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Please bow with me and let's ask God's help. Oh, sovereign Lord, God, we come to you as dust. The people you have created sheep, a part of your flock, and you are our great shepherd. And God, we come to you and ask for grace. Father, we do not want this to be just sometime we sit here, our minds drift off somewhere else, and that no spiritual good, no benefit comes. God, we long for this to be a time that we're transformed. God, you work miracles by your word. You work miracles when your people gather together and draw near to you. You transform, you change, and God, this is what we desire. I ask God for every Christian who's gathered in this room this morning, please, God, don't let us leave unchanged. Don't let us leave here the same as when we came in here. God, I pray, pierce us with the word. Bring conviction, bring challenge. Show us our sin, Lord. Even even if in my preaching, I don't mention things specifically, just all of us, just 
cause to come into our minds the specific places that we need to leave evil and, and move on to obedience. God, build us up and strengthen us. Show us yourself, your glory, your character, your will, your truth, your ways. God, and I pray for any gathered in, in this room this morning, oh God, that has not yet responded to you, has not yet turned their hearts to you to come bow to Christ, knowing that they need to be saved and seeking that from you. God, I, I beg that this would be the day that goes down in history that their souls were brought to life, that their eternity was changed. So please, God, give eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that is not stubborn towards you, but receptive. Please, God, work and give grace. Lord, all the thousands of ways that I need your grace right now to be able to preach and, 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 and do it right without saying wrong things or in the wrong tone, giving the wrong idea. Help me to preach what's true, only what's true. And Father, help all of us, O oh God, to bow to you. Please bless and protect this time, O oh God. Glorify your name, we pray. And we ask it through the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. Um, I am one of them, and parenthesis, so are you, if you are in Christ. Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say those little phrases right there. You think I sound a little crazy. Others of you recognize the little children's song that we teach. Even the little two and three-year-olds sometimes get sung back here in this room. But have you ever thought about what it means? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. There actually is a great mystery, great truths that are revealed in that little toddler song that's actually some of the deepest passages of Scripture in the Bible, uh, some of the ways that curtains have been pulled back from thousands of years of mystery are revealed in that little song. God is teaching some things there. God promised back in the Garden of Eden that he was going to redeem the world. He was going to fix what had been broken by sin. And, and we find ourselves very often asking, how would he do it? And the storyline of the Bible is showing how God has worked in history to bring about how he's going to fix all things. How he has accomplished the, the great redemption, the great restoration well, in the storyline of the Bible, we see God form a people, form a people and then enter into a special relationship with them. He does special things for them, makes special promises to them, blesses them in some unique ways. But the pinnacle of the promises that God made to this people was this right here. I will be your God and you will be my people. Those who are the people of God, they're the ones who receive eternal life. Those who are the people of God, they're the ones who've been made right with God. Those are the ones who are under the favor of God. So you this morning, somehow, some way, you got to get in. You've got to find a way to become a part of the people of God. And I just want to warn you that if there has never been a time in your life that you have consciously, knowingly come to God, crying out to him, 
to save you from your sins and give you eternal life. You're not among the people of God just because you're breathing. You're not among the people of God just because you're here this morning. I'm glad that you are here. These are right steps to take, but just church attendance doesn't make you a part of the people of God. You need in this group. In Genesis 12, first book of the Bible, God came to a man named Abram. God made promises to him just out of the blue. And God established him as the father of this people. But this is where a great deal of confusion comes in. The physical descendants who came from this man through Isaac and Jacob, oftentimes, not, not always and not everyone, but oftentimes came to believe that simply being a part of the bloodline of this man was enough to make them a part of the people of God. And one of the things that we see God doing all through the Old Testament again and again, calling out through the prophets was to, was to give the warning and herald this invitation, but to give the warning that you are not among the people of God just because you were born to a particular family. There is a way you must be made a part of the people of God inwardly, in the heart, in the spirit, and then in a great pulling back of the curtains in the New Testament, God reveals that it has been his intention all along to bring those from all the people groups of the earth, all the nations to also become a part of this people, the people of Abraham, the people of God, those of the nations who were not from this bloodline lineage, and I, I presume I speak to a group that is comprised of that. I don't believe I know anyone from this congregation who comes from the bloodline of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. We are among those that the scripture talks about as from the nations. You trace your lineage back far enough, you will come to idolatry. You will come to a people that was in rebellion to God. We are invited, the nations are invited to come and be made spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. You may not be a part of the bloodline of Abraham, but we're called to become a part of this people. And so I just want to tell you that what we study here today is going to be very helpful to you. If you're going to be a Christian, if you are going to take up your cross and follow after Christ, the studying of the scriptures is going to have to become a major part of your life. There, there just is no Christianity in ignoring the scriptures. People try it every day. In the end, they will find themselves to be unchristian. If you're going to take up your cross and follow after Christ, the reading and the studying of scripture is going to have to become a regular part of your life. And as you're reading through the Bible, if you are unsure of these truths we're going to talk about today, you're going to find all kinds of places where there's a lot of confusion. Because this subject comes up quite a few times in the New Testament. And, and in fact, hear this. The places in the New Testament that explain the gospel the clearest. I'm talking places like the book of John, the book of Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. 
Those places that explain the message of how to be made right with God, how to have eternal life, the gospel of Christ, those places that give the clearest explanation of the gospel, every one of them have a major discussion on this topic right here. How the Jew and the Gentile who are in Christ, how we relate together. How the nations of the earth who are not from the bloodline of Abraham, how do we connect? How do we relate with those who are? What about those who of the bloodline of Abraham who have not trusted in Christ? Are they of this people of God? All of this stuff kinds of com, com, comes up throughout this. And so throughout the book of Romans, which we've mentioned, is the clearest explanation of the gospel that we have in the scriptures. We also have the largest discussion in all of the Bible on the Jew and the non-Jew, the Gentile. That's the, that's the nations of the earth, not from that bloodline. How do we relate together? What has God done? How are we to think of these things? You might think, well, what does this really matter? This is how God has revealed the riches in Christ. This is how God has explained the gospel. So there is a need to understand how this all relates. And there are actually going to be some major sections of this book that address that. We begin to get into it this morning. So let me give you one central idea statement that will help us as we study through this morning. Being a part of the true people of God is about being right with God inwardly. Let me say that again for you note takers who are trying to get that down. Being a part of the true people of God is about being right with God inwardly. If you've got a bulletin with you and you see the back of it there, I've got the outline from this whole passage that I've worked out. We're ready for point number three. That should be the part that's in bold there. You'll see two sub points, A and B, numerous sub sub points underneath that. We're going to walk through each of these this morning. And so here is the first one, letter A, circumcision. Let's read verse 26 again. Excuse me, verse, verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Let's talk for just a second about this whole concept of circumcision. If you're new to studying the Bible and you hear us talking about this, you could be a little uneasy, uncomfortable, maybe even a little embarrassed in your seat, thinking, why in the world on a Sunday morning is the Bible addressing these kinds of things right here? This seems like a strange topic to think about. Well, we need to understand what God was doing whenever he gave this, even from the very beginning. It was about 11 months ago, I checked my notes, whenever we did an overview of the Old Testament and we talked through some of the theology of this. So if you were here at that time, some of this might sound a little familiar to you. But God gave circumcision as the sign of the covenant that he made with Abraham. When you read the Bible, we see that our God is a covenant-making God. That is a gracious thing of Him. He does not have to do this. God is loving and merciful to come to humans and to make promises, to enter into vows and agreements with them. And God came to this man named Abram and uh, entered into a covenant relationship with him, made special promises to him, and then gave him this sign of the covenant. Most often when God makes covenants with men, he gives a sign of the covenant. It's something to remind us of the agreement and then 
the sign always has a way that it's symbolic in some way. It, it points to something. So, so here's a for instance. Remember the covenant that God made with Noah in the world after the flood. God made the promise, I will never destroy the earth with water again. And then God said, here's the, here's the sign. He set the bow in the cloud. Well, every time, even today, here we are, thousands of years removed. Every time we see a rainbow, we are reminded of that covenant and those promises. But not only is there just a reminder, like some words in the sky saying, remember, but there's also symbolism in the sign. We see that in a couple of ways. You know, for one, when does a rainbow appear? It appears when, when the rain is ending the clouds begin to part and the sun shines through just as at the end of the flood. God was bringing an end to the storms and the rains and the clouds broke and the sun shone through those things, given this promise. And so we're reminded of this, but we're also shown that in the same way that a warrior hangs up his bow whenever he's done with battle. So God hung his bow in the, in the clouds whenever he was done with that act of judgment in those days. Every time we see that, we're reminded of these things. So there's a symbolism in the sign. We in the new covenant, we have the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Every time we see those things with our eyes, there's like a sermon being preached, even if no words are being spoken. When you see the Lord's Supper, the death the resurrection, the, the broken body and the spilt blood of Christ are being acted out every time that we see this. So it's like a, a sermon is being preached by the sign. Well, if the sign preaches a sermon, what sermon is preached by circumcision? Well, we don't have to wonder because God explains it to us. Several places in the Bible, places like Deuteronomy 10, 16 Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Jeremiah 4, 4, Jeremiah 9, 6, and then some places in the New Testament that we're going to turn to throughout our study this morning. But, but listen to a couple of them. Deuteronomy 10, 16, listen to what it says. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. And then Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says this, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul so that you may live. So here's the picture that God gives to us. Circumcision was a bloody, painful act of cutting off flesh from the body. And that is the exact picture that God wants us to have of what has to happen in our hearts in order to be made right with God. And whenever we have these kinds of imageries, it saves us from, from some false teaching. It saves us from some of those shallow and superficial false gospels of ideas of things just like, so long as I just do something outwardly, start attending church, then I'm right with God. No, God gives a picture of taking a flint knife, cutting, bleeding, grimacing, and God says, this is what must happen in the heart for us to come and be made right with him. Friends, the picture here is of what real repentance is. The picture here is, is, is of what real conversion is. What is a real turning to God? We say those kinds of things, but if we only left it there, turn to God, someone could think, okay, I guess I'll start picking up the Bible once a while. I guess I'll go find a church. Any church will be fine. 
But whenever God gives these kinds of imageries, we understand, okay, this is a bigger deal than just turning over a new relief and, and get, getting some religion. No, we're talking about a true repentance here. I think it's very similar to whenever Jesus in the New Testament said, here is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. Take up your cross, die to yourself, and come follow after me. That imagery of take up your cross is like you see a cross with your name on it and there's resistance in your heart being like, I don't want to go die. I want to live how I want to live. I want to live my own kind of way. But you see that Jesus is Lord. You trust in him. You see that he's the only way of eternal life. And so you pick up that cross and you say, okay, Jesus, I, I, I trust you. I'm going to stop warring against you. I'm going to come obey you. I'm going to come submit. I'm going to come bow to you. This is what it means to truly become a Christian. This is what it truly means for your heart to turn away from rebellion and turn to Christ with a spirit of submission to him. And I just want to give this warning to you, friends, this morning. If the way that you have turned to God has not been like that, if this attitude of cutting, bleeding, and hurting to leave sin in order to turn to God, if that does not define your attitude towards God, you have not yet repented. You have not yet been converted and you are still in your sins. And I just want us to hear this very carefully, friends. A gospel with no repentance is a false gospel and that false gospel is absolutely ravaging the church in America right now. The false gospel of, hey, just pray this little prayer and Jesus gives you a get out of hell free card. The false gospel of, hey, just in one moment, pray this little sinner's prayer and their magic words giving you eternal life. That false gospel is destroying the church. And every single time, whenever we're, seeing all these headlines of another pastor, another leader who falls to adultery, falls to scandal. Every time we keep seeing this perpetuate itself over and over and over again. And we ask ourselves, how do you get there? How can a man carry on and think himself right with God and yet in secret be cheating on his wife or carrying on some scandalous sin? I'll tell you how you get there. You get there by the false gospel of easy believism. You get there by the false gospel of thinking, if I pray the magic words, Christ calls us to turn and believe, circumcise your hearts and trust in Christ. This is what God calls out to us in the scripture. And that's the picture that God begins to give us. Even in the first book of the Bible, isn't it amazing? Even in the book of Genesis, we have repentance and faith explained, demonstrated, and shown examples of in this. So God gave circumcision to Abraham as an outward sign to preach a sermon about what must happen inwardly. Abraham himself came to God in faith, in true faith and he was made right with God. And, and this is a critical part to understand. God made him the father, the spiritual father of all who are made right with God. The spiritual father of all who would come to God in this way. Let me say a word to you children in the room for just a second. 
You guys can perk up bright-eyed here for a moment. If you have no idea what I'm talking about whenever I say these things, ask mommy and daddy this afternoon. Parents, don't be embarrassed by this. God gave these kinds of things. He even says in scripture, he gave them for the purpose so that we would have a way of explaining. So if your children come to you this afternoon, say, daddy, what's circumcision? God has given you an opportunity to explain the gospel. And God has given some pictures there that, that are involved in this. So that's the sign. That's the picture. But once again, here's where the misunderstanding came. Many, and not all, not everyone, but many of the descendants of Abraham, that people that we refer to as the Israelites, the Jews, they came to believe that the physical act, just the fact that they came from Abraham, just the fact that they were a part of this people, just the fact that they had received this, this act, that this is what satisfied God, that this was enough to be right with God. This made them safe from the judgment just because they were a part of this bloodline. And so God addresses that in two ways here. Um, kind of in the first part and in the second part, here are the two ways he addresses this. Number one, just having these outward things does not mean that you are saved. And secondly, and then there's this, this second one is, is big. This is a big revelation in scripture here. When the uncircumcised nations of the earth, the Gentile nations, the people groups of the earth who are not from that bloodline, when they turn to God through Christ, they are made a part of this people of God. So we're looking at that first part. Let's roll through four quick statements that he makes about that. Number one, under the law, Circumcision would have benefit for a man's soul if he kept the law. Look at verse 25, the first part again. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. The point that he's making here is this. If you're going to rely on your ability to be good, if you're going to rely on your ability to obey God, obey the law of God, then here's what you got to do. You must obey every single part of it. It's not enough to just obey most of it. It's not enough to just obey 99% of it. If you're going to be right with God based on your works, then you have got to be perfectly holy because God is perfectly holy, created you to be perfectly holy, and the kingdom of heaven, no sin, not even little ones that you consider will be allowed in there. So if you are going to do it yourself, then absolute perfection is demanded. In, in the book of Galatians, there was, there was a situation that went down. Paul had preached the gospel there, had told them about faith in Christ. We're made right with God by a true faith, true repentant faith in Christ. This is how we are made right with God. Paul moved on to go plant another church. After he left, a group came in behind him. We oftentimes call them the Judaizers. This was a group who came in with a distorted version of the gospel. They came into this group of mostly Gentile, brand new believers, didn't know everything, didn't have it all figured out yet. And they began to preach this distorted version. And they said this, you guys have believed in Christ. That's great. You need to do that, but you're not yet okay. See, you now need to begin keeping the law of Moses and doing good works and your good works plus your faith will then equal salvation. 
The book of Galatians is entirely written to address that false teaching right there. And if you want to flip over to one passage with me, Galatians chapter 5 for a moment. Paul spends a good part of the book, number one, addressing the fact that no good works gains you righteousness with God. Faith plus works is not what it takes to be right with God at all. But then he also addresses this part about these Gentiles began to think, I have to become Jewish. I have to become an Israelite physically in order to be right with God. And he begins to explain to them, this is not the way of Christ. So Galatians chapter five, look at verse two. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. It would be similar to this. Imagine someone who was baptized, but they were unconverted. They were unregenerate. They had never truly repented and trusted in Christ. Here's the question. What benefit will their baptism be on the day of judgment? The answer is none. In fact, that baptism will actually serve as a witness against them that they should have known. Now, if you are in Christ and you are baptized, this has benefit as we are obeying God. It doesn't save you, but it honors God. But a man who is unconverted and yet baptized will not find on the day of judgment that that outward work somehow gave him eternal life. The focus is the inward. What baptism is for is to be another sign of the covenant to show what must happen inwardly. So very similar that we see there. Here's the second statement that he makes. Breaking the law undoes circumcision. Look at verse 25, the second part there. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. His point is, as we've just said, if you're going to rely on your good works, your ability to be righteous by your own doing, then you have to do all of it. And that circumcision has no hope of saving you. Here's the third statement. If the uncircumcised man, that would refer to the Gentile, if he keeps the law, it will be counted by God as circumcision. Read verse 26. Now, if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? All right, now here's what he is saying. It is not the case that out there somewhere, there is some man living on an island who is perfectly obedient to God, keeping all of the moral law written on his heart, but he's just never heard about the scriptures and never heard about the law of Moses, so he's never been circumcised. It's not the case that that exists out there. But the point that is being made here is that theoretically, if there was a man out there, if there was a man who kept all of the moral law, never had access to the scriptures, but he obeyed what he knew in his heart, if he did that, God would count him as if he were a law keeper, circumcised. God would regard him as if he were circumcised. And then similarly, the fourth statement made right there, verse 27, and he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who though having the letter of the law 
and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. If there were a man who was not physically circumcised, but kept all of the law of God that he knew in his heart, not only would he be regarded as if he were, but God says here that he would also stand in judgment over the physical Jew who had the scriptures, had the law, had all of these things, and yet broke it. Now, not that any human will be the ones judging on the day of judgment. Jesus will. But in the same kind of way that Jesus said on the day of judgment, the queen of the south will rise up and bear witness to the fact that she recognized the wisdom of God in Solomon in the Old Testament. Jesus said that there will be some who, who are brought forward as witnesses on the day of judgment and will show some things there. So what God is doing is dismantling wrong beliefs. He's correcting, he's showing the errors of believing that any outward thing makes you right with God. Now, you this morning, you may not have these exact ones in your mind as to why you think you're right with God, but what God is showing here is that there is no outward work that you can do that makes you right with God. You are made right with God when inwardly, in the heart, you come to Him in the right way by faith in Christ. Well, here's the second major part of this. True Jewishness. And we're going to work through five statements that are made here. Here's the first one, starting in verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Well, what does that mean? Flip over to another place with me. Romans chapter 9, same book. Go back to chapter 9, find verse 6 there. This is going to be picked up again in a later section. Find verse 6, look what it says here. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. That can sound a little confusing, but here's what he means. Not all of the physical Israelites are a part of the true Israel, the true spiritual people of God. It was never about bloodline. It has always been about coming and being made right with God. Here's the second statement. Verse 28 again, look at the second part. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. That's the point we've been making several times here. True circumcision is an inward repentance and coming to God. And then here's the third one. Look at the first part of verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. The true Israelite, the true Jew is the soul who is one inwardly, meaning has been converted and has become a part of the true people of God. Friends, true religion, true worship, and a true walk with God is first and foremost inward and then works good deeds out of the overflow of the heart. That's an important enough statement. I'm going to say it again. True religion True worship, a true walk with God is first and foremost inward and then it works good deeds out of the overflow of the heart. True religion is internal and external honor to God. False religion is always trying to separate them. Have you noticed that? False religion is always trying to separate the internal and the external and just isolate one. So you've got one version of false religion that is only about the external outward deeds. We're going to come back to that one. But you've also got some of those who claim that only to be internal. 
Have you ever, have you ever spoken with some of those who are always saying things like, it's all about the heart, Jesus hates religion? Have you ever met that guy, the Jesus hates religion guy? Jesus hates religion. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Listen to me. The Bible uses the word religion to describe what God created, so let's stop that nonsense. Jesus died to create the church. The people of God have been gathered together as the church of God by the blood of the beloved son of God. Don't trash the church. It doesn't go well with God. What is more accurate is to say this. Jesus despises mere outward religion. Jesus despises a heartless religion. He despises it when a people honors him with their lips so as to look good, but inwardly are not right with him. Their hearts are far from him. And yet all through history, friends, Old Testament and New Testament, and it exists today in thousands of different groups, even under the name of Christian. There are those who claim to satisfy God by mere outward ceremonies, rituals, rites, baptisms, confirmations, all of this kind of stuff. And I think this is a helpful place to bring this kind of thing up. It's an apt time. It's a perfect illustration. Even just this week, I've had some folks ask me, what should we think about things like Ash Wednesday and Lent? Well, you need to know that things like this, they are invented by men. It's a man-made creation. It's never in the Bible. It's never hinted at in the scriptures. There are some who will, who will understand that, but will still say some things like, yeah, but maybe it can be helpful. But I just appeal to you to consider this. Do you remember the time when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him, why do you and your disciples not ceremonially wash before you eat meals? And what they were referring to is this. The Pharisees had developed this practice. It was nowhere in the Bible. They invented it. They developed this practice that before they would eat food, they would go through a ritual of cleansing themselves of the uncleanness that they might have touched. Like if they went out in the marketplace, accidentally rubbed shoulders with a guy who was unclean, before they ate a meal, they believed that if they cleansed the sin off of them, then they wouldn't be eating it into their bodies. Now that's kind of weird and a bit superstitious, but they believed it. They imposed it. They even questioned Jesus as to why he was not doing this. And, and this is what Jesus responded. Jesus said, why, why do you break the commandments of God to follow the doctrines of men? And at that moment, Jesus launched into one of the heaviest indictments of man-made false religion that he ever spoke. Over in Matthew chapter 15, and I invite you to turn there with me for a moment. In Matthew chapter 15, look what Jesus says here. Matthew 15, starting in verse 7. He's even got some other examples in there of other ways they had created some things, just made some things up out of the blue and imposed it upon everybody. But start in verse 7 there, he says, you hypocrites, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Watch this teaching as doctrines, the precepts of men. You know, he goes on to say more, but there's several principles there. One of the principles is this. We don't have the right to just invent religious stuff. 
but we don't have the right to just come up out of our own minds and invent something and then believe it to be a part of Christianity, a part of religion, and then especially to impose it on others. Scripture alone has the authority to tell us how we relate with God. God is the one who tells us how we relate to him. We don't have the right to invent that kind of stuff. And then secondly, do you see this principle as well? False religion is always trying to move the focus from the inward to the outward, from the internal to the external, from the heart to the participation in rites and rituals and deeds. And in fact, the Bible doesn't have enough, so let's invent some more. Let's invent confirmation. Nowhere in the Bible. Not even hinted at in the scriptures. Let's invent infant baptism. Nowhere in the Bible. Not even hinted at in the scriptures. On and on, these groups keep making up and creating new things, new ways, new actions I can do to be right with God. And all along, the scripture is calling out, No man has this right. God has told us how to be right with him. We come to Christ inwardly, in the heart, and then he has prepared good works for us. We don't get to invent those on our own. False religion always wants to claim external actions as the place of safety. God shows us Christ is the place of safety. Christ is where you will stand. Christ is how you will be saved. And and listen, if you study the Pharisees' religion and see some of the parts that Jesus preached against, and then you read on in the New Testament, where Paul says things like, in later times, some will fall away from the faith and pay attention to doctrines of demons. And then he goes on to describe some of them. Men who forbid marriage and forbid the eating of certain foods. When you start to piece all these things together, you see there are a great many religious groups under the name of Christian who are doing exactly what Jesus forbid, creating new rites, new rituals, always casting you to put your hope in actions rather than in Christ. Here's the fourth statement that he makes. Look at verse 29 again. Look at the second part. Circumcision is that which is of the heart. True circumcision is the inward work of God. Look look over at chapter 9 again with me. Romans 9 verse 6. Look what he says there. Remind you, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Jump down to verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. This is why, friends, when Zacchaeus repented, Jesus said what he did. I I find that account of Zacchaeus' salvation just one of the most helpful in the Bible for a number of different reasons. You know, for one, when I talk about repentance here, someone could ask the question, Pastor, I I thought the Bible teaches that faith alone is what makes us right with God. Why are you adding repentance? Or why does the scripture sometimes say that? Well, another way of just saying it is this is what true faith is. The book of James explains that true saving faith is not just to believe that God exists. It is to trust in Christ. And we see it it modeled in Zacchaeus. Jesus was passing by one day and Zacchaeus hears about it. He's never seen this guy before. He's kind of short, so he has to climb a tree to try to look down in Zacchaeus. Jesus walks up to the tree and says, Zacchaeus, never met him before. Zacchaeus was astounded. Zacchaeus, I need you to come on down. I have to stay at your house today. There's a divine appointment that must take place. 
And, and then the text says that, that Zacchaeus stops. I, I get this picture that Jesus and Zacchaeus and this whole crowd were walking back to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus has now encountered Jesus' preaching and teaching. He's heard the message of the gospel and Zacchaeus just stops in his tracks. And he says to Jesus, half of my possessions I will give to the poor and every man I've defrauded I will pay back four times as much. Which, listen to me, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Tax collectors were notoriously greedy. The love of money was their great idol that they had put on the throne of their hearts. This is the thing Zacchaeus loved more than anything, his money. And in a moment of trusting Christ, of God working the new birth inside of him, his eyes being opened in a way that he had never seen before, in one instant, Zacchaeus turned to Christ. I, I think that's a beautiful way of seeing repentant faith, repentance and faith together as the same expression of turning to Christ. And I love what Jesus says right after that. Today, salvation has come to this man's house because he too is a son of Abraham. Wait a second now. Zacchaeus was born of the bloodline of Abraham. Yes, but he had not yet been made a spiritual son of Abraham. And in that moment, the moment of conversion, Zacchaeus had his heart circumcised by a circumcision made without hands. We see his conversion and it's a beautiful thing. And friends, the exact same kind of conversion has to happen with you and I. But also if you're still in Romans 9, look, look down a little farther as well. Chapter 9, find verse 23 for a moment. In chapter 9, this subject, the big subject that carries through is this Jew and Gentile relationship. In the midst of that, God takes the opportunity to preach on election, predestination. We have a very clear passage come through there again. And coming at the end of that, in verse 23, he begins to explain why God has done this. Why has God worked as he has and elected some to salvation before the foundation of the earth? Verse 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Who are these vessels of mercy? This is every soul that turns to Christ. This is you and I in this room who have trusted in Christ, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24, look, watch this. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, now he's quoting the Old Testament to show them this has been God's plan all along. He's been showing this all along. I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. What is he teaching there? He's teaching the same thing that will then be picked up again in chapter 11. In chapter 11, it's explained that uh, we who are among the, the non-Jewish nations, when we come to faith in Christ, it's like we were a, a wild olive tree growing out in the woods somewhere. And God came and snipped off us, the branches, and walked us over to another olive tree, a tame one, a cultivated one. And he has grafted us into the same people as those that he began, the people of God. Let me show this to you in some other places. In the book of Galatians, if you'll flip there again, 
we're winding down just a few more places. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. If you don't get there, it's okay. I'm going to read it out loud. Galatians 3, 24. But the law, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now the faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. You and I who are in Christ have been made one people, the people of God. Do you remember whenever Jesus was explaining that he is the great shepherd and he said, I have other sheep that are not of this flock. I must bring them in also that you all may be one flock with one shepherd, one people of God, one tree, one group. Look over at the book of Colossians for a moment. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Endure with me. We're almost there. Colossians 2, 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, excuse me, 3, verses 2 and 3, he goes on to explain. He says, beware of the false circumcision. We are the true circumcision. All through the New Testament, we see this being explained, how we are made a part of the true people of God. Well, here's the last statement that is made back in Romans chapter two. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Friends, true religion is about truth and not appearances. It's about pleasing God and not man. Really, this is a helpful way to see the difference between the false religion of the Pharisees and then the true religion that, for instance, Jesus showed in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the ways you might think of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus showing, here's what true religion looks like, as opposed to the false religion you see around you. It is false religion and hypocrisy to do religious deeds and actions for any motive other than the sincere desire to please God and be right with him. Those motives can be many. Some people have the motive of doing religion for the sake of gaining some earthly treasure, like money. People find an angle to do things like that. Or a common one, to do religion simply so that I feel better about myself. One that Jesus addressed probably the most. To do religion so that you look good to others. And Jesus said, if that is your motive, then you get your reward here and there is no reward to come. Let me ask you this question. In examining this, how do I know if there's hypocrisy in my heart? How do I know if I have false religion living inside of me? Do you have sins in your life that you would be content to keep so long as nobody finds out about them? Do you have secret pet sins that you've been holding on to and you intend to keep holding on to. Friends, if that's the case, there is at least a streak of hypocrisy running through your heart and it needs to be cut out. Hypocrisy and false religion is concerning yourself with looking holy, 
but without being holy? Does your heart have the desire simply to look godly in front of others? Or do you have the longing, I want to please God, I want to be godly? Hypocrisy seeks to please men. True religion cares only about pleasing God. I want to be right with my God. Friends, there is no form of religion that will save you. The ceremonies of religion will not save you. No rites, no rituals, no actions, no attendance, no participation in outward things is how you will be made right with God. It is your heart responding to Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is Messiah. And He is treasure. You come to trust in Him. Cry out to him to have mercy on you and save you. You come to him like Zacchaeus. You come to him like the thief on the cross and you will be saved. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, every truth we've looked at, I I ask, oh Lord, that it will not be quickly forgotten. Father, bring your spirit to now add weight to the word. Accomplish your purposes. I pray your will will be done. Convict us where we need it. Encourage us where we need it. And any who are still unconverted, please, O God, haunt them with these truths until they run to Christ. We love you, Lord. Please bless us as we dismiss. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Father Abraham Had Many Sons. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.